Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother story time. This week we bring you two stories by F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Jelly Bean and Three Hours Between Planes. Something light and fun after the dark October mood. Fitzgerald was considered one of the best authors of the 20th century, a leading voice of the lost generation of the 1920s and the Jazz Age. And now, The Jelly Bean by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Jim Powell was a jelly bean. Much as I desire to make him an appealing character, I feel that it would be unscrupulous to deceive you on that point. He was a bread in the bone, dyed in the wool, 99 and three quarters percent jelly bean, and he grew lazily all during jelly bean season, which is every season, down in the land of the jelly beans, well below the Mason Dixon line. The particular jelly bean patch which produced the protagonist of this history, a little city of 40,000 that had dozed sleepily for 40,000 years in southern Georgia, occasionally stirring in its slumbers and muttering something about a war that took place sometime, somewhere, and that everyone else has forgotten long ago. Jim was a jelly bean. I write that again because it has such a pleasant sound, rather like the beginning of a fairy story, as if Jim were nice. It somehow gives me a picture of him with a round, appetizing face and all sort of leaves and vegetables growing out of his cap. But Jim was long and thin and bent at the waist from stooping over pool tables, and he was what might have been known in the indiscriminating North as a corner loafer. Jelly Bean is the name throughout the undissolved Confederacy for one who spends his life conjugating the verb to idle in the first person singular. I am idling, I have idled, I will idle. Jim was born in a white house on a green corner. It had four weather-beaten pillars in front and a great amount of latticework in the rear that made a cheerful criss-cross pattern for a flowery, sun-drenched lawn. Originally, the dwellers in the white house had owned the ground next door, and next door to that, and next door to that. But this had been so long ago that even Jim's father scarcely remembered it. He had, in fact, thought it a matter of so little moment that when he was dying from a pistol wound got in a brawl, he neglected even to tell little Jim, who was five years old and miserably frightened. The White House became a boarding house, run by a tight-lipped lady from Macon, whom Jim called Aunt Mamie, and detested with all his soul. He became fifteen, went to high school, wore his hair in black snarls, and was afraid of girls. He hated his home where four women and one old man prolonged an interminable chatter from summer to summer about what lots the Powell place had originally included and what sorts of flower would be out next. Sometimes the parents of little girls in town, remembering Jim's mother and fancying a resemblance in the dark eyes and hair, invited him to parties, but parties made him shy and he much preferred sitting on a disconnected axle in Tilly's garage, rolling the bones or exploring his mouth endlessly with the long straw. For pocket money, he picked up odd jobs, and it was due to this that he stopped going to parties. 
At his third party, little Marjorie Haight had whispered indiscreetly, and within hearing distance, that he was a boy who brought the groceries sometimes. So instead of the two-step and polka, Jim had learned to throw any number he desired on the dice. He became eighteen. The war broke out, and he enlisted as a gob and polished brass in the Charleston Navy Yard for a year. Then, by way of variety, he went north and polished brass in the Brooklyn Navy Yard for a year. When the war was over, he came home. He was twenty-one. In the twilight of one April evening, when a soft gray had drifted down along the cotton fields and over the sultry town, he was a vague figure leaning against a board fence, whistling and gazing at the moon's rim above the lights of Jackson Street. His mind was working persistently on a problem that had held his attention for an hour. The jelly bean had been invited to a party. Back in the day when all the boys had detested all the girls, Clark, Darrow, and Jim had sat side by side in school. But while Jim's social aspirations had died in the oily air of the garage, Clark had alternately fallen in and out of love, gone to college, taken to drink, given it up, and in short became one of the best beau of the town. Nevertheless, Clark and Jim had retained a friendship that, though casual, was perfectly definite. That afternoon, Clark's ancient Ford had slowed up beside Jim, who was on the sidewalk, and out of a clear sky, Clark invited him to a party at the country club. The impulse that made him do this was no stranger than the impulse which made Jim accept. The latter was probably an unconscious ennui, a half-frightened sense of adventure. And now Jim was soberly thinking it over. He began to sing, drumming his long foot idly on a stone block in the sidewalk, till it wobbled up and down in time to the low, throaty tune. One smile from home in a jelly-bean town lives Jean, the jelly-bean queen. She loves her dice and treats them nice. No dice would treat her mean. He broke off and agitated the sidewalk to a bumpy gallop. Daggone, he muttered half aloud. They would all be there, the old crowd, the crowd to which, by right of the White House, sold long since, and the portrait of the officer in gray over the mantle, Jim should have belonged. But that crowd had grown up together in a tight little set, as gradually as the girls' dresses had lengthened inch by inch, as definitely as the boys' trousers had dropped suddenly to their ankles. And to that society of first names and dead puppy loves, Jim was an outsider, a running mate of poor whites. Most of the men knew him, condescendingly. He tipped his hat to three or four girls. That was all. When the dusk had thickened into a blue setting for the moon, he walked through the hot, pleasantly pungent town to Jackson Street. The stores were closing, and the last shoppers were drifting homeward, as if born on the dreamy revolution of a slow merry-go-round. A street fair, farther down a brilliant alley of very-colored booths and contributed a blend of music to the night. An oriental dance on a calliope, a melancholy bugle in front of a freak show, a cheerful rendition of Back Home in Tennessee on a hand organ. The jelly bean stopped in a store and bought a collar. Then he sauntered along toward Soda Sam's, 
where he found the usual three or four cars of a summer evening parked in front, and the little boys running back and forth with sundaes and lemonades. Hello, Jim. It was a voice at his elbow. Joe Ewing sitting in an automobile with Mary Lynn Wade. Nancy Lamar and a strange man were in the back seat. The jelly bean tipped his hat quickly. Hi, Ben. Then, after an almost imperceptible pause, How y'all? Passing, he ambled on toward the garage where he had a room upstairs. His How y'all had been said to Nancy Lamar, to whom he had not spoken in fifteen years. Nancy had a mouth like a remembered kiss, and shadowy eyes and blue-black hair, inherited from her mother, who had been born in Budapest. Jim passed her often on the street, walking small-boy fashion with her hands in her pockets, and he knew that with her inseparable Sally Carol Hopper, she had left a trail of broken hearts from Atlanta to New Orleans. For a few fleeting moments, Jim wished he could dance. Then he laughed, and as he reached his door began to sing softly to himself. Her jelly roll can twist your soul, her eyes are big and brown. She's the queen of the queens of the jelly beans, my jean of jelly bean town. At 9.30, Jim and Clark met in front of Soda Sam's and started for the country club in Clark's Ford. Jim, asked Clark casually, as they rattled through the jasmine-scented night. How do you keep alive? The jelly bean paused, considered. Well, he said finally, I got a room over Tilly's garage. I help him some with the cars in the afternoon, and he gives it to me free. Sometimes I drive one of his taxis and pick up a little that away. I get fed up doing that regular, though. That all? Well, when there's a lot of work, I help him by the day, Saturdays usually. And then there's one main source of revenue I don't generally mention. Maybe you don't recollect I'm about the champion crapshooter of this town. They make me shoot from a cup now because once I get the feel of a paradise, they just roll for me. Clark grinned appreciatively. I never could learn to set them so's they do what I wanted. Wish you'd shoot with Nancy Lamar someday and take all her money away from her. She will roll them with the boys and she loses more than her daddy can afford to give her. I happen to know she sold a good ring last month to pay a debt. The jelly bean was noncommittal. The White House on Elm Street still belong to you? Jim shook his head. Sold. Got a pretty good price, seeing it wasn't in a good part of town no more. Lawyer told me to put it into Liberty Bonds, but Aunt Mamie got so she didn't have no sense, so it takes all the interest to keep her up at Great Farm Sanitarium. I got an old uncle upstate, and I reckon I can go up there if ever I get sure enough poor. Nice farm, but not enough men around to work it. He asked me to come up and help him, but I don't guess I'd take much to it. Too doggone lonesome. He broke off suddenly. Clark, I want to tell you I'm much obliged for you asking me out, but I'd be a lot happier if you'd just stop the car right here and let me walk back into town. Shucks, Clark grunted. Do you good to step out. You don't have to dance. Just get out there on the floor and shake. Hold on, exclaimed Jim uneasily. 
Don't you go leading me up to any girls and leaving me there, so I'll have to dance with them. Clark laughed. Cause, continued Jim desperately, without you swear you won't do that, I'm a-going to get out right here and my old leg's going to carry me back to Jackson Street. They agreed after some argument that Jim, unmolested by females, was to view the spectacle from a secluded settee in the corner where Clark would join him whenever he wasn't dancing. So ten o'clock found the jelly bean with his legs crossed and his arms conservatively folded, trying to look casually at home and politely uninterested in the dancers. At heart he was torn between overwhelming self-consciousness and an intense curiosity as to all that went on around him. He saw the girls emerge one by one from the dressing room, stretching and pluming themselves like bright birds, smiling over their powdered shoulders at the chaperones, casting a quick glance around to take in the room, and simultaneously the room's reaction to their entrance. And then, again like birds, alighting and nestling in the sober arms of their waiting escorts. Sally Carol Hopper, blonde and lazy-eyed, appeared clad in her favorite pink and blinking like an awkward rose. Marjorie Haight, Mary Lynn Wade, Harriet Carey, and all the girls he had seen loitering down Jackson Street by noon, now curled and brilliantined and delicately tinted for the overhead lights, were miraculously strange Dresden figures of pink and blue and red and gold, fresh from the shop and not yet fully dried. He had been there half an hour, totally uncheered by Clark's jovial visits, which were each one accompanied by a, "'Hello, old boy! How are you making out?' and a slap on his knee. A dozen males had spoken to him or stopped for a moment beside him, but he knew that they were each one surprised to find him there, and fancied that one or two were even slightly resentful. But at half-past ten his embarrassment suddenly left him, and a pull of breathless interest took him completely out of himself. Nancy Lamar had come out of the dressing-room. She was dressed in yellow organdy, a costume of a hundred cool corners, with three tiers of ruffles and a big bow in back, until she shed black and yellow around her in a sort of phosphorescent luster. The jelly-bean's eyes opened wide, and a lump arose in his throat, for she stood beside the door until her partner hurried up. Jim recognized him as the stranger who had been with her in Joe Ewing's car that afternoon. He saw her set her arms akimbo and say something in a low voice and laugh. The man laughed, too, and Jim experienced the quick pang of a weird new kind of pain. Some ray had passed between the pair, a shaft of beauty from that sun that had warmed him a moment since, the jelly-bean felt suddenly like a weed in a shadow. A moment later, Clark approached him, bright-eyed and glowing. "'Hi, old man!' he cried with some lack of originality. "'How you making out?' Jim replied that he was making out as well as could be expected. "'You come along with me,' commanded Clark. "'I've got something that'll put an edge on the evening.' Jim followed him awkwardly across the floor and up the stairs, to the locker room where Clark produced a flask of nameless yellow liquid. Good old corn! Ginger ale arrived on a tray. Such potent nectar as good old corn needed some disguise beyond seltzer. Say, boy, exclaimed Clark breathlessly, doesn't Nancy Lamar look beautiful? Jim nodded. Mighty beautiful, 
he agreed. She's all dolled up to a fare you well tonight, continued Clark. Notice that fella she's with? Big fella, white pants. Yeah, well, that's Ogden Merritt from Savannah. Old man Merritt makes the Merritt safety razors. This fella's crazy about her. Been chasing after her all year. She's a wild baby, continued Clark. But I like her. So does everybody. But she sure does do crazy stunts. She usually gets out alive, but she's got scars all over her reputation from one thing or another she does. That's so? Jim passed over his glass. That's good corn. Not so bad. Oh, she's a wild one. Shoot craps, say, boy. And she do like her highballs. Promised I'd give her one later on. She in love with this merit? Damned if I know. Seems like the best girls around here marry fellas and go off somewhere. He poured himself one more drink and carefully corked the bottle. Listen, Jim, I gotta go dance, and I'd be much obliged if you'd just stick this corn right on your hip as long as you're not dancing. If a man notices I've had a drink, he'll come up and ask me, and before I know it, it's all gone, and somebody else is having my good time. So Nancy Lamar was going to marry. This toast of a town was to become the private property of an individual in white trousers, and all because white trousers' father had made a better razor than his neighbor. As they descended the stairs, Jim found the idea inexplicably depressing. For the first time in his life he felt a vague and romantic yearning. A picture of her began to form in his imagination. Nancy walking boy-like and debonair along the street, taking an orange as tithe from a worshipful fruit dealer, charging a dope on a mythical account. At Soda Sam's, assembling a convoy of bow and then driving off in triumphal state for an afternoon of splashing and singing. The jelly bean walked out on the porch to a deserted corner, dark between the moon on the lawn and the single-lighted door of the ballroom. There he found a chair, and lighting a cigarette, drifted into the thoughtless reverie that was his usual mood. Yet now it was a reverie made sensuous by the night, and by the hot smell of damp powder puffs, tucked in the front of low dresses and distilling a thousand rich scents to float out through the open door. The music itself, blurred by a loud trombone, became hot and shadowy, a languorous overtone to the scraping of many shoes and slippers. Suddenly the square of yellow light that fell through the door was obscured by a dark figure. A girl had come out of the dressing room and was standing on the porch not more than ten feet away. Jim heard a low, breathed, Doggone. And then she turned and saw him. It was Nancy Lamar. Jim rose to his feet. Howdy. Hello. She paused, hesitated, and then approached. Oh, it's Jim Powell. He bowed slightly, tried to think of a casual remark. Do you suppose, she began quickly, I mean, do you know anything about gum? What? I've got gum on my shoe. Some utter ass left his or her gum on the floor, and of course I stepped in it. Jim blushed inappropriately. Do you know how to get it off? She demanded petulantly. I've tried a knife. I've tried every damn thing in the dressing room. I've tried soap and water and even perfume, and I've ruined my powder puff trying to make it stick to that. Jim considered the question in some agitation. Why, I think maybe gasoline. 
The words had scarcely left his lips when she grabbed his hand and pulled him at a run off the low veranda, over a flower bed, and at a gallop toward a group of cars parked in the moonlight by the first hole of the golf course. Turn on the gasoline, she commanded breathlessly. What? For the gum, of course. I've got to get it off. I can't dance with gum on. Obediently, Jim turned to the cars and began inspecting them with a view to obtaining the desired solvent. Had she demanded a cylinder, he would have done his best to wrench one out. Here, he said after a moment's search. Here's one that's easy. Got a handkerchief? It's upstairs, wet. I used it for the soap and water. Jim laboriously explored his pockets. Don't believe I got one either. Doggone it! Well, we can't turn it on and let it run on the ground. He turned the spout. A dripping began. More! He turned it on fuller. The dripping became a flow and formed an oily pool that glistened brightly, reflecting a dozen tremulous moons on its quivering bosom. Ah, oh, she sighed contentedly. Let it all out. The only thing to do is to wade in it. In desperation, he turned on the tap full, and the pool suddenly widened, sending little rivers and trickles in all directions. That's fine. That's something like. Raising her skirts, she stepped gracefully in. I know this'll take it off, she murmured. Jim smiled. There's lots more cars. She stepped daintily out of the gasoline and began scraping her slipper, side and bottom, on the running board of the automobile. The jelly bean contained himself no longer. He bent double with explosive laughter, and after a second she joined in. You're here with Clark Darrow, aren't you? She asked as they walked back toward the veranda. Yes. You know where he is now? Out dancing, I reckon. The deuce. He promised me a highball. Well, said Jim, I guess that'll be all right. I got this bottle right here in my pocket. She smiled at him radiantly. I guess maybe you'll need ginger ale, though, he added. Not me, just the bottle. Sure enough. She laughed scornfully. Try me. I can drink anything any man can. Let's sit down. She perched herself on the side of a table, and he dropped into one of the wicker chairs beside her. Taking out the cork, she held the flask to her lips and took a long drink. He watched her, fascinated. Like it? She shook her head breathlessly. No, but I like the way it makes me feel. I think most people are that way. Jim agreed. My daddy liked it too well. It got him. American men, said Nancy gravely, don't know how to drink. What? Jim was startled. In fact, she went on carelessly, they don't know how to do anything very well. The one thing I regret in my life is that I wasn't born in England. In England? Yes, it's the one regret of my life that I wasn't. Do you like it over there? Yes, immensely. I've never been there in person, but I've met a lot of Englishmen who are over here in the army, Oxford and Cambridge men. You know, that's like Sewanee and University of Georgia are here. And, of course, I've read a lot of English novels. Jim was interested, amazed. Do you ever hear of Lady Diane Manor? She asked earnestly. 
No, Jim had not. Well, she's what I'd like to be. Dark, you know, like me, and wild as sin. She's the girl who rode her horse up the steps of some cathedral or church or something, and all the novelists made their heroines do it afterwards. Jim nodded politely. He was out of his depths. Pass the bottle, suggested Nancy. I'm going to take another little one. A little drink won't hurt a baby. You see, she continued, again breathless after a draft. People over there have style. Nobody has style here. I mean, the boys aren't really worth dressing up for or doing sensational things for, don't you know? I suppose so. I mean, I suppose not, murmured Jim. And I'd like to do them and all. I'm really the only girl in town that has style. She stretched out her arms and yawned pleasantly. Pretty evening. Sure is, agreed Jim. Like to have a boat, she suggested dreamily. Like to sail out on a silver lake. Say the Thames, for instance. Have champagne and caviar sandwiches along. Have about eight people. And one of the men would jump overboard to amuse the party and get drowned like a man did with Lady Diana Manners once. Did he do it to please her? It didn't mean to drown himself to please her. He just meant to jump overboard and make everybody laugh. I reckon they just died laughing when he drowned. Oh, I suppose they laughed a little, she admitted. I imagine she did anyway. She's pretty hard, I guess, like I am. You hard? Like nails. She yawned again and added, Give me a little more from that bottle. Jim hesitated, but she held out her hand defiantly. Don't treat me like a girl, she warned him. I'm not like any girl you ever saw. She considered. Still, perhaps you're right. You got old head on young shoulders. She jumped to her feet and moved toward the door. The jelly bean rose also. Goodbye, she said politely. Goodbye. Thanks, jelly bean. Then she stepped inside and left him wide-eyed on the porch. At twelve o'clock, a procession of cloaks issued single file from the women's dressing room, and each one pairing with a coated bow like dancers meeting in a cotillion figure, drifting through the door with sleepy happy laughter, through the door into the dark where autos backed and snorted and parties called to one another and gathered around the water cooler. Jim, sitting in his corner, rose to look for Clark. They had met at eleven, then Clark had gone in to dance. So, seeking him, Jim wandered into the soft drink stand that had once been a bar. The room was deserted, except for a sleepy man dozing behind the counter and two boys lazily fingering a pair of dice at one of the tables. Jim was about to leave when he saw Clark come in. At that moment, Clark looked up. Hi, Jim, he commanded. Come on over here and help us with this bottle. I guess there's not much left, but there's one all around. Nancy, the man from Savannah, Mary Lynn Wade, and Joe Ewing were lolling and laughing in the doorway. Nancy caught Jim's eye and winked at him humorously. They drifted over to a table and arranging themselves around it waited for the waiter to bring ginger ale. Jim, faintly ill at ease, turned his eyes on Nancy, who had drifted into a nickel crap game with the two boys at the next table. 
Bring him over here, suggested Clark. Joe looked around. We don't want to draw a crowd. It's against the club rules. Nobody's around, insisted Clark, except Mr. Taylor. He's walking up and down like a wild man trying to figure out who let all the gasoline out of his car. There was a general laugh. I bet a million Nancy got something on her shoe again. You can't park when she's around. Oh, Nancy, Mr. Taylor's looking for you. Nancy's cheeks were glowing with excitement over the game. I haven't seen a silly little fliver in two weeks. Jim felt a sudden silence. He turned and saw an individual of uncertain age standing in the doorway. Clark's voice punctuated the embarrassment. Won't you join us, Mr. Taylor? Thanks. Mr. Taylor spread his unwelcome presence over a chair. Have to, I guess. I'm waiting till they dig me up some gasoline. Somebody got funny with my car. His eyes narrowed and he looked quickly from one to the other. Jim wondered what he had heard from the doorway. Tried to remember what had been said. I'm right tonight, Nancy sang out. And my four bits is in the ring. Faded, snapped Taylor suddenly. Why, Mr. Taylor, I didn't know you shot crabs. Nancy was overjoyed to find he had seated himself and instantly covered her bet. They had openly disliked each other since the night she had defiantly discouraged a series of rather pointed advances. All right, babies, do it for your mama. Just one little seven. Nancy was cooing to the dice. She rattled them with a brave, underhand flourish and rolled them out on the table. Ah, oh, I suspected it. And now again with the dollar up. Five passes to her credit found Taylor a bad loser. She was making it personal, and after each success, Jim watched triumph flutter across her face. She was doubling with each throw. Such luck could scarcely last. Better go easy, he cautioned her timidly. Ah, but watch this one, she whispered. It was eight on the dice, and she called her number. Little Ada, this time we're going south. Ada and Decatur rolled over the table. Nancy was flushed and half hysterical, but her luck was holding. She drove the pot up and up, refusing to drag. Taylor was drumming with his fingers on the table, but he was in to stay. Then Nancy tried for a ten and lost the dice. Taylor seized them avidly. He shot in silence, and in the hush of excitement, the clatter of one pass after another on the table was the only sound. Now Nancy had the dice again, but her luck had broken. An hour passed. Back and forth it went. Taylor had been at it again and again and again. They were even at last. Nancy lost her ultimate five dollars. "'Will you take my check?' she said quickly. "'For fifty, and we'll shoot it all.' Her voice was a little unsteady, and her hand shook as she reached to the money. Clark exchanged an uncertain but alarmed glance with Joe Ewing. Taylor shot again. He had Nancy's check. "'How about another?' she said wildly. "'Geez, any bank will do. Money everywhere, as a matter of fact.' Jim understood the good old corn he had given her, the good old corn she had taken since. He wished he dared interfere— a girl of that age and position would hardly have two bank accounts. When the clock struck two, he contained himself no longer. May I? Can't you let me roll em for you? He suggested, his low, lazy voice a little strained.
Suddenly sleepy and listless, Nancy flung the dice down before him. All right, old boy. As Lady Diane Manners says, shoot him, Jellybean. My luck's gone. Mr. Taylor, said Jim carelessly, we'll shoot for one of those there checks against the cash. Half an hour later, Nancy swayed forward and clapped him on the back. Stole my luck, you did? She was nodding her head sagely. Jim swept up the last check and, putting it with the others, tore them into confetti and scattered them on the floor. Someone started singing, and Nancy, kicking her chair backward, rose to her feet. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' she announced. "'Ladies, that's you, Mary Lynn. I want to tell the world that Mr. Jim Powell, who is a well-known jellybean of this city, is an exception to the great rule, lucky in dice, unlucky in love.' He's lucky in dice, and as a matter of fact, I... I love him. Ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Lamar, famous dark-haired beauty, often featured in the Herald as one of the most popular members of younger set, as other girls are often featured in this particular case. Wish to announce... Wish to announce... Anyway, gentlemen... She tipped suddenly. Clark caught her and restored her balance. My error, she laughed. She stoops to, stoops to, anyway, we'll drink to Jelly Bean, Mr. Jim Powell, King of the Jelly Beans. And a few minutes later, as Jim waited, hat in hand, for Clark, in the darkness of that same corner of the porch where she had come searching for gasoline, she appeared suddenly beside him. Jelly Bean, she said. Are you here, Jellybean? I think... And her slight unsteadiness seemed part of an enchanted dream. I think you deserve one of my sweetest kisses for that, Jellybean. For an instant, her arms were around his neck, her lips were pressed to his. I'm a wild part of the world, Jellybean, but you did me a good turn. Then she was gone, down the porch, over the cricket-loud lawn. Jim saw Merritt come out the front door and say something to her angrily, saw her laugh and, turning away, walk with averted eyes to her car. Mary Lynn and Joe followed, singing a drowsy song about a jazz baby. Clark came out and joined him on the steps. "'All pretty lit, I guess,' he yawned. "'Merritt's in a mean mood. He's certainly off Nancy.' Over east, along the golf course, a faint rug of gray spread itself across the feet of the night. The party in the car began to chant a chorus as the engine warmed up. "'Good night, everybody,' called Clark. "'Night, Clark. Night.' There was a pause, and then a soft, happy voice added, "'Good night, Jellybean.' The car drove off to a burst of singing, a rooster on a farm across the way took up a solitary mournful crow, and behind them a last waiter turned out the porch light. Jim and Clark strode over toward the ford, their shoes crunching raucously on the gravel drive. "'Oh, boy,' sighed Clark softly. "'How you can set those dice!' It was still too dark for him to see the flush on Jim's thin cheeks, or to know that it was a flush of unfamiliar shame." 
Over Tilly's garage, a bleak room echoed all day to the rumble and snorting downstairs and the singing of the washers as they turned the hose on the cars outside. It was a cheerless square of a room, punctuated with a bed and a battered table on which lay a half a dozen books. Joe Miller's slow train through Arkansas. Lucille, in an old edition, very much annotated in an old-fashioned hand. The Eyes of the World by Harold Bell Wright, and an ancient prayer book of the Church of England, with the name Alice Powell and the date 1831, written on the flyleaf. The East, gray when Jellybean entered the garage, became a rich and vivid blue as he turned on his solitary electric light. He snapped it out again, and going to the window, rested his elbows on the sill and stared into the deepening morning. With the awakening of his emotions, his first perception was a sense of futility, a dull ache at the utter grayness of his life. A wall had sprung up suddenly around him, hedging him in, a wall as definite and tangible as the white wall of his bare room. And with his perception of this wall, all that had been the romance of his existence, the casualness, the light-hearted improvidence, the miraculous open-handedness of life faded out. The jelly bean strolled up Jackson Street, humming a lazy song, known at every shop and street stand, crop full of easy greeting and local wit, sad sometimes for only the sake of sadness, and the flight of time, that jelly bean was suddenly banished. The very name was a reproach, a triviality. With a flood of insight, he knew that Merritt must despise him, that even Nancy's kiss in the dawn would have awakened not jealousy, but only a contempt for Nancy's so lowering herself. And on his part, the jelly bean had used for her a dingy subterfuge learned from the garage. He had been her moral laundry. The stains were his. As the gray became blue, brightened and filled the room, he crossed to his bed and threw himself down on it, gripping the edges fiercely. I love her he cried aloud. God! As he said this, something gave way within him like a lump melting in his throat. The air cleared and became radiant with dawn, and turning over on his face he began to sob dully into the pillow. In the sunshine of three o'clock, Clark Darrow, chugging painfully along Jackson Street, was hailed by the jelly bean, who stood on the curb with his fingers in his vest pockets. Hi! called Clark, bringing his four to an astonishing stop alongside. Just get up? The jelly bean shook his head. Never did go to bed. Felt sort of restless, so I took a long walk this morning out in the country. Just got into town this minute. Should think you'd feel restless. I've been feeling that away all day. I'm thinking of leaving town, continued the jelly bean, absorbed by his own thoughts. Been thinking of going up on the farm and taking a little of that work off Uncle Dunn. Reckon I've been bumming too long. Clark went silent, and the jelly bean continued. I reckon maybe after Aunt Mamie dies, I could sink that money of mine into the farm and make something out of it. All my people originally came from that part up there. Had a big place. Clark looked at him curiously. That's funny, he said. This... This sort of affected me the same way. Jellybean hesitated. I don't know, he began slowly. Something about 
about that girl last night talking about a lady named Diana Manners, an English lady, sort of got me thinking. He drew himself up and looked oddly at Clark. I had a family once, he said defiantly. Clark nodded. I know, and I'm the last of them, continued Jellybean, his voice rising slightly. And I ain't worth shucks. Name they call me by means jelly, weak and wobbly like. People who weren't nothing when my folks was a lot turn up their noses when they pass me on the street. Again, Clark was silent. So I'm through. I'm going today. And when I come back to this town, it's going to be like a gentleman. Clark took out his handkerchief and wiped his damp brow. Reckon you're not the only one it shook up, he admitted gloomily. All this thing of girls going round like they do is something to stop right quick. Too bad, too, but, but everybody'll have to see it that way. Do you mean, demanded Jim in surprise, that all that's leaked out? Leaked out? How on earth could they keep it secret? It'll be announced in the papers tonight. Dr. Lamar's got to save his name somehow. Jim put his hands on the sides of the car and tightened his long fingers on the metal. Do you mean Taylor investigated those checks? It was Clark's turn to be surprised. Haven't you heard what happened? Jim's startled eyes were answer enough. Why, announced Clark dramatically, those four got another bottle of corn, got tight and decided to shock the town. So Nancy and that fellow Merritt were married in Rockville at seven o'clock this morning. A tiny indent appeared in the metal under Jellybean's fingers. Married? Sure enough, Nancy sobered up and rushed back into town, crying and frightened to death, claimed it all been a mistake. First Dr. Lamar went wild and was going to kill Merritt, but finally they got it patched up some way, and Nancy and Merritt went to Savannah on the 2.30 train. Jim closed his eyes and with an effort overcame a sudden sickness. It's too bad, said Clark philosophically. I don't mean the wedding, reckon that's all right, though I don't guess Nancy cared a darn about him. But it's a crime for a nice girl like that to hurt her family that way. The jelly bean let go of the car and turned away. Again, something was going on inside him, some inexplicable but almost chemical change. Where are you going? asked Clark. The jelly bean turned and looked dully back over his shoulder. Gotta go he muttered. Been up too long. Feeling right sick. Oh! The street was hot at three, and hotter still at four. The April dust seemed to enmesh the sun and give it forth again as a world-old joke, forever played on an eternity of afternoons. But at half-past four a first layer of quiet fell, and the shades lengthened under the awnings and heavy-foliaged trees. In this heat, nothing mattered. All life was weather, awaiting through the hot where events had no significance for the cool that was soft and caressing like a woman's hand on a tired forehead. Down in Georgia, there is a feeling, perhaps inarticulate, that this is the greatest wisdom of the South. So after a while the jelly bean turned into a pool hall on Jackson Street, where he was sure to find a congenial crowd who would make all the old jokes, the ones he knew. And now, 
Three Hours Between Planes. It was a wild chance, but Donald was in the mood, healthy and bored, with a sense of tiresome duty done. He was now rewarding himself, maybe. When the plane landed, he stepped out into the Midwestern summer night and headed for the isolated Pueblo airport, conventionalized as an old red railway depot. He did not know whether she was alive, or living in this town, or what was her present name. With mounting excitement, he looked through the phone book for her father, who might be dead too, somewhere in these twenty years. No, Judge Harmon Holmes, Hillside 3194. A woman's amused voice answered his inquiry for Miss Nancy Holmes. Nancy is Mrs. Walter Gifford now. Who is this? But Donald hung up without answering. He had found out what he wanted to know and had only three hours. He did not remember any Walter Gifford, and there was another suspended moment while he scanned the phone book. She might have married out of town. Nope, Walter Gilford, Hillside 1191. Blood flowed back into his fingertips. Hello? Hello, is Mrs. Gifford there? This is an old friend of hers. This is Mrs. Gifford? He remembered, or thought he remembered, the funny magic in the voice. This is Donald Plant. I haven't seen you since I was twelve years old. Oh! The note was utterly surprised, very polite, but he could distinguish in it neither joy nor certain recognition. Donald! added the voice. This time there was something more in it than struggling memory. When did you come back to town? Then, cordially, where are you? I'm out at the airport for just a few hours. Well, come up and see me. Sure you're not going to bed? Heavens no, she exclaimed. I was sitting here having a highball by myself. Just tell your taxi man. On his way, Donald analyzed the conversation. His words at the airport established that he had retained his position in the upper bourgeois. Nancy's aloneness might indicate that she had matured into an unattractive woman without friends. Her husband might either be away or in bed. And because she was always ten years old in his dreams, the highball shocked him, but he adjusted himself with a smile. She was very close to thirty. At the end of a curved drive, he saw a dark-haired little beauty standing against the lighted door, a glass in her hand. Startled by her final materialization, Donald got out of the cab, saying, "'Mrs. Gifford?' She turned on the porch light and stared at him, wide-eyed and tentative. A smile broke through the puzzled expression. "'Donald, it is you. We all change so. Oh, this is remarkable!' As they walked inside, their voices jingled the words, "'All these years,' and Donald felt a sinking in his stomach. This derived in part from a vision of their last meeting— when she rode past him on a bicycle, cutting him dead, and in part from fear lest they have nothing to say. It was like a college reunion, but there the failure to find the past was disguised by the hurried, boisterous occasion. Aghast, he realized that this might be a long and empty hour. He plunged in desperately. You were always a lovely person, but I'm a little shocked to find you as beautiful as you are. It worked. The immediate recognition of their changed state, the bold compliment, made them interesting strangers, 
instead of fumbling childhood friends. Have a highball? she asked. No, please don't think I've become a secret drinker, but this was a blue night. I expected my husband, but he wired he'd be two days longer. He's very nice, Donald, and very attractive. Rather your type and coloring, she hesitated. And I think he's interested in someone in New York. And I don't know. After seeing you, it sounds impossible, he assured her. I was married for six years, and there was a time I tortured myself that way. Then one day I just put my jealousy out of my life forever. After my wife died, I was very glad of that. It left a very rich memory, nothing marred or spoiled or hard to think over. She looked at him attentively, then sympathetically as he spoke. I'm very sorry, she said, and after a proper moment, you've changed a lot. Turn your head. I remember father saying, that boy has a brain. You probably argued against it. I was impressed. Up to then I thought everybody had a brain. That's why it sticks in my mind. What else sticks in your mind? He asked, smiling. Suddenly Nancy got up and walked quickly a little away. Ah, uh, now, she reproached him. That isn't fair. I suppose I was a naughty girl. You were not, he said stoutly, and I will have a drink now. As she poured it, her face still turned from him, he continued. Do you think you were the only little girl who was ever kissed? Do you like the subject? She demanded. Her momentary irritation melted, and she said, oh, What the hell? We did have fun, like in the song. On the sleigh ride. Yes, and somebody's picnic, Trudy James's. And at Frontenac, that, oh, those summers. It was the sleigh ride he remembered most, and kissing her cool cheeks in the straw in one corner while she laughed up at the cold white stars. The couple next to them had their backs turned, and he kissed her little neck and her ears, and never her lips. And the Max party, where they played post office, and I couldn't go because I had the mumps, he said. I don't remember that. Oh, you were there, and you were kissed, and I was crazy with jealousy like I never have been since. Funny, I don't remember. Maybe I wanted to forget. But why? he asked in amusement. We were two perfectly innocent kids. Nancy, whenever I talked to my wife about the past, I told her you were the girl I loved almost as much as I loved her but I think I really loved you just as much. When we moved out of town, I carried you like a cannonball in my insides. Were you that much stirred up? My God, yes. I... He suddenly realized they were standing just two feet from each other, that he was talking as if he loved her in the present, that she was looking up at him with her lips half-parted and a clouded look in her eyes. Go on, she said. I'm ashamed to say I like it. I didn't know you were so upset then. I thought it was me who was upset. You, he exclaimed. Don't you remember throwing me over at the drugstore? He laughed. You stuck out your tongue at me. I don't remember at all. It seemed to me you did the throwing over. Her hand fell lightly, almost consolingly on his arm. 
I've got a photograph book upstairs I haven't looked at for years. I'll dig it out. Donald sat for five minutes with two thoughts. First, the hopeless impossibility of reconciling what differences people remembered about the same event. And secondly, that in a frightening way, Nancy moved him as a woman, as she had moved him as a child. Half an hour had developed an emotion that he had not known since the death of his wife, that he had never hoped to know again. Side by side on a couch, they opened the book between them. Nancy looked at him, smiling and very happy. Oh, this is such fun, she said. Such fun that you're nice, that you remember me so beautifully. Let me tell you, I wish I'd known it then. After you'd gone, I hated you. What a pity, he said gently. But not now, she reassured him, and then impulsively, kiss and make up? That isn't being a good wife, she said after a minute. I really don't think I've kissed two men since I was married. He was excited, but most of all confused. He had kissed Nancy, or a memory, or this lovely trembling stranger who looked away from him quickly and turned a page of the book. Wait, he said. I don't think I could see a picture for a few seconds. We won't do it again. I don't feel so very calm myself. Donald said one of those trivial things that cover so much ground. Wouldn't it be awful if we fell in love again? Stop it! She laughed, but very breathlessly. It's all over. It was a moment. A moment I'll have to forget. Don't tell your husband. Why not? Usually I tell him everything. It'll hurt him. Don't ever tell a man such things. All right, I won't. Kiss me once more, he said inconsistently, but Nancy had turned a page and was pointing eagerly at a picture. Here's you, she cried. Right away. He looked. It was a little boy in shorts, standing on a pier with a sailboat in the background. I remember, she laughed triumphantly. The very day it was taken, Kitty took it and I stole it from her. For a moment, Donald failed to recognize himself in the photo. Then, bending closer, he failed to utterly recognize himself. That's not me, he said. Oh, yes, it was at Frontenac. The summer we... We used to go to the cave. What cave? I was only three days in Frontenac. Again he strained his eyes at the slightly yellowed picture. And that isn't me, that's Donald Bowers. We did look rather alike. Now she was staring at him, leaning back, seeming to lift away from him. But you're Donald Bowers! She exclaimed. Her voice rose a little. No, you're not! You're Donald Plant! I told you on the phone. She was on her feet, her face faintly horrified. Plant? Bowers? I must be crazy! Or it was that drink! I was mixed up a little when I first saw you. Look here, what have I told you? He tried for a monkish calm as he turned a page of the book. Nothing at all, he said. Pictures that did not include him formed and reformed before his eyes. Frontenac, a cave, Donald Bowers, you threw me over? Nancy spoke from the other side of the room. You'll never tell this story, she said. Stories have a way of getting around. There isn't any story. 
he hesitated. But he thought, so she was a bad little girl. And now he was suddenly filled with wild, raging jealousy of little Donald Bowers, he who had banished jealousy from his life forever. In the five steps he took across the room, he crushed out twenty years and the existence of Walter Gifford with his stride. "'Kiss me again, Nancy,' he said, sinking to one knee beside her chair, putting his hand upon her shoulder. But Nancy strained away. "'You said you had to catch a plane.' "'It's nothing. I can miss it. It's of no importance. Please go,' she said in a cool voice. "'And please try to imagine how I feel.' "'But you act as if you don't remember me,' he cried. "'As if you don't remember Donald Plant.' "'I do. I remember you, too. "'But it was all so long ago.' "'Her voice grew hard again. "'The taxi number is Crestwood 8484.' "'On his way to the airport, "'Donald shook his head from side to side. "'He was completely himself now, "'but he could not digest the experience.' Only as the plane roared up into the dark sky and its passengers became a different entity from the corporate world below did he draw a parallel from the fact of its flight. For five blinding minutes he had lived like a madman in two worlds at once. He had been a boy of twelve and a man of thirty-two, indissolubly and helplessly commingled. Donald had lost a good deal, too, in those hours between the planes— but since the second half of life is a long process of getting rid of things, that part of the experience probably didn't matter. And those are our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed The Jelly Bean and Three Hours Between Planes by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time.